ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. First, a word from the sponsor of the Compliance Podcast Network this month, Ethico. Handling multiple compliance cases can often feel like navigating a complex labyrinth. Ethico introduces simplicity and intelligence into this chaos with our custom workflow automation. By automatically routing cases based on your unique criteria, we turn the maze into a clear path forward. Envision a compliance process that's not just effective, but also intuitive and adaptable to your needs. It's time to redefine efficiency in your workplace. Embark on this journey of transformation at ethico.com slash CPN. Book a demo and explore the white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance, to discover a world of seamless compliance management. In for a treat today, because I am in for a treat today, I have back with me Pamela Fierce Walsh. Pamela is not a compliance professional, but she has been in an adjacent sector to compliance literally her entire professional career. And she's one of the most interesting people I've met over the years. So Pamela, first of all, welcome back to the pod. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, thank you, Tom. What a warm welcome. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you. So thanks for having me. Could you tell our audience about your professional background? Because it is as varied as probably anyone I've met in podcasting. <laughs> okay. A graduate of Indiana University Maurer School of Law, went straight to the State Department, where I spent more than 17 years as a U.S. diplomat, focused on a variety of issues around the globe. In the last five years of my time there, I was the U.S. representative to the Kimberley process, which regulates the international trade in rough diamonds, as well as the senior advisor for conflict and critical minerals. So that's a role that brought me into supply chain concerns or up and down the minerals supply chain, from whether it was a business perspective or a, a pure geostrategic lens, critical minerals really won my heart. I was recruited away from that role and did a stint with um, a large company in the apparel space. And I am now back on the scene and happy to be with you today talking about critical minerals. We're going to talk about critical minerals in a way that I haven't had the opportunity to talk about on this podcast. I didn't tell you, but the title of this podcast is the ESG podcast, but it's really much more about sustainability and other issues that you have had direct experience with. And I wanted to really focus on something that is on the mind of literally every Texan, and I think many Americans this winter, and that's electricity and specifically electric vehicle batteries. And I say that because we had a major cold snap down into the single digits, which we rarely get in Texas. And we did pretty well this year. ERCOT learned some lessons and diversified. But what is, where do you see the uh, battery industry going? How is it regulated? Who regulates it? And how can we, how can companies help position to get better information out to the consumer? It's those are all really big questions, Tom, and that any one of them could be a podcast all on their on their own. First of all, let me say I am a proud Hoosier. I am not a Texan. I have not survived the cold spells. I live on the East Coast where we do know a fair share of our cold spells. And my heart goes out to everyone in Texas because I know that's such a rude awakening for you guys. But I think the the good news story out of that, and I don't pretend to be close to any power brokers in that one, is that 
the the story is not the tragedy that befell Texas. It is really the way that the state came through compared to the, a similar crisis several years before with tragic loss of life, et cetera. Yes, we can talk about what EV batteries do in the cold and how that looks, but I think on a state level, I think you've got people who got to stay warm, and that was not because of simply the oil and gas dependence. That was from clean energy, and that's a win for everybody. The area that you are really focused on now, as I said, tried to say a little bit earlier, was EV batteries. Mm -hmm. And maybe I could start with, is there a regulatory framework for those products either in the United States or in Europe? Oh boy. Again, another big topic and so happy to talk about it. So I think the first thing to think about when you're talking about electrical ve electric vehicle batteries is that they are reflect they are a reflection of our transition away from simply reliance on oil and natural gas to an economy based on a different set of supply chain factors. We all know that whether no matter which nothing all of this is political neutral right but there are increasing climate concerns and part of that climate concern is the increasing global temperature over 75 percent of which is linked directly back to energy production which means if we are going to as a globe reduce the heat released into the atmosphere on from just electric transmit from just transmission energy transmission excuse me you've got to find diversified sources and that's where the electric vehicle comes into play because if you think of all of the cars on the road if you're transitioning from making them a source of combustion that adds to increased temperatures and neutralizes that uh, that emission you've gone a long way to carving out a big contributor for greenhouse gas emissions that are contributing to the climate change. But I think you're getting at a much bigger question, which is, first of all, why are we even talking about electric vehicles? There are three big reasons. I talked about the climate change aspects, which is super important, but there's also the consumer demand element, and there's also a global competition element. I'll get to the regulatory question, but that's more of a how, not a why. So why do we hear about electric vehicles so often and the batteries that go into them and the minerals that go into the batteries that go into the car? First, it's the climate reason, which we've touched on. Two, it's consumer demand. This one gets a little tricky, but bear with me because people want to feel good about the products that they buy. Every industry knows this. And in the case of EVs, this desire can or does compel consumers to spend their money on hybrid or fully electric vehicles. And this pushes up the need to make those products at prices that consumers can tolerate. Related to this, however, because again, said bear with me, beyond feeling good about the purchase of an EV battery, lurking beyond the simple exchange of oil for an electric transmission, there are complicated mineral supply chains that, if not properly managed, include environmental calamity, they deepen social or human rights abuses, and they perpetuate gross corruption. Without trying to be a lightning rod and not honing in too much on, quote, ESG, because consumers may not call them that, the consumers don't want to believe that their purchase is supporting any of those bad things. 
So that's a whole uh, line of treatise in and of itself, right? What consi what considers a, a human rights violation? What goes into a product that is um, negative for the environment in which it's manufactured? But then when you go a step further and you pull the scope out a little bit more, and this one I have to say, I could have a lot of fun picking apart as a foreign policy nerd, um, but I'm going to keep my enthusiasm in check. If we focus on e the EV lens, on supply chains that facilitate bringing electric vehicles to market, then we start with critical minerals. We can't end there, however. We also have to think about where the minerals are refined or turned into a useful material and where the products they are used for get manufactured. So those are three separate nodes, each incredibly complex and fairly unique, depending on the critical mineral at play. For batteries, that means we're really talking lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and graphite. There are others, but those are the big ones. But before you even get to the manufacturing stage, it is safe to say that the minerals markets have been heavily dominated by Chinese companies, regardless of where those companies operate. The raw materials are then moved to a facility, whether in China or not, that is owned or controlled by a Chinese company. When compared to US or EU-based companies, there is not the same degree of market control or penetration. So right off the bat, you have a pretty obvious imbalance. And the economic benefits of the EV revolution, which is not going away for the other two reasons I outlined, are accruing to Chinese interests. So let's just leave it at that. Those are the whys of why we talk about electric vehicle batteries and why you want to know who's regulating it and how. But the moving past the whys, and we could talk about those a really long time because I think each of them are really interesting. There are the two big jurisdictions that are grappling with these issues are doing so in similar but still different ways. So in the back of your mind, just keep those three whys in there. Those three whys, climate, consumer, and global competition, matter for two very huge markets, the United States and the European Union. Both are taking similar but still very different approaches to this supply chain, the set of supply chain issues. So in the United States, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act. I think it's everybody's heard of it. I think the IRA, this crowd in particular, will have heard of the Inflation Reduction Act. And then in the European Union, you have a slightly broader set, which makes sense. They have a much different regulatory structure than the United States has. They have a Critical Raw Materials Act, as well as some EU battery regulations. Now, what's important for the compliance folks is that all of us have to care about these issues. All of us have to care about those regulatory schemes moving forward. It's still a little bit murky. Both of the scheme, the, the regulatory regimes are working through their issues, but we're all going to have to be paying close attention. So in the United States, if we're talking about the, the IRA, this offers financial incentives for consumers to purchase electric vehicles as long as certain conditions apply to the supply chain. Ultimately, we're talking about up to $7,000 right now in tax incentives for consumers to purchase an electric vehicle battery, but it has to meet certain battery component requirements. By 2029, all battery components will need to be manufactured in or assembled in North America. All of them by 2029. The critical mineral requirement 
by 2027 will require 70% of the critical minerals contained in the battery or extracted or processed in the United States or in a country which the United States has a free trade agreement. For 2024, the threshold is 50%, goes up by 10% every year. But also, and this is really important, this gets at that third why around geopolitical competition, foreign entity of concern. So beginning this year, an eligible clean vehicle sold in the United States may not contain any battery components that are manufactured by a foreign country of concern. And beginning in 2025, it may not contain any critical minerals that were extracted, processed, or recycled by a foreign entity of concern. Those current entities of concern are China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia. Now, there are rules underpinning those that are getting looked at. Clarification notices are out. Notices of intent to make a rule are out. But those are really the contours, right? So you see there the United States saying, okay, if electric vehicle batteries are a pretty big, important thing for a variety of reasons, the United States is on its back foot when it comes to the supply chains that make these things. We don't want the benefits of that accruing to any of these entities of concern from a national security perspective. So how can we incentivize the consumer base to work toward the goals that we as a country are, are trying to achieve. So that's an that's a pretty huge shift. It's monumental, I think, because when you look at the supply chains of these things that aren't nat naturally accruing in the United States or for which we don't have the same infrastructure that we have, say, an oil refinery, uh, these are big, big things. I know my contacts in the Department of Energy are working real hard on it as our interior defense has some interest there too. And I think you've got folks who would like to make sure that companies are, the auto manufacturers are pushing harder to meet these sourcing guidelines because right now a lot of them can't. So that's the United States, like in a nutshell. And again, the IRA is a whole podcast on itself, but I think we're missing an opportunity to look at the overlap and the differences with where Europe is compelling its supply chain actors on this issue. So taking a step back on, you know, in the European Union as part of their Green Deal, which for those who, who are not aware, the EU Commission in 2020 adopted an approach to make the EU, quote, carbon neutral by 2050. And that has a, a variety of policy and regulatory efforts underway that are dealing with that. And there are two essential ones that I'm highlighting because it, maybe also let me say it's important to note that circularity as a concept is really important to the European approach on minerals. That is the idea that if something reaches the end of its life, it's collected and it's made reusable or it's transformed. And so for batteries, that means collecting the minerals and the materials inside it. Okay. Now, so the Europeans are not just concerned about where it's made or how it comes to market. Of course, they have those concerns. But then when it's done, what, where's it going and what's happening to it? Because they are concerned about, one, recouping the any economic benefit from that battery sitting around and letting valuable products and, or commodities inside it go unused. But also from an environmental standpoint, what are they doing with those batteries? Are they just accruing to a landfill? You know, what's happening with them? So there are two principal things here that I want to highlight. The Critical Raw Materials Act 
which is which the parliament and the council have reached a provisional agreement on it in 2023. So it's pending formal adoption, but it calls for 10% of the EU's uh, critical raw materials to be sourced within the EU. It's recycled sources should be 25%, meaning 25% of the European Union's critical raw materials needs should be from recycled sources. Think about that. And then finally, refining and processing inside the EU should be 40% of the annual consumption. So 40% of what the EU consumes should be refined inside the EU. So there are risks there for large companies because they also have to carry out risk assessments in their supply chains. Minerals, not traditionally known as always super clean, especially if you get into artisanal mining concerns, you're looking at environmental and human rights concerns. And now finally, and this one I think is super exciting, is the digital product passport, which is part of the EU battery regs. To be clear, this applies to all batteries going into the EU market. If you are putting a battery, I don't care if it's going into your laptop or your car, you're going to have a digital product passport that enables the sharing of key products related to that product's sustainability and circularity. And from February 2027, that's going to apply to electric vehicle batteries. Folks are also going to have to be conducting due diligence as an obligation on their producers so that they can effectively communicate what those impacts are on their supply chains. So those are two really massive regulatory pushes. So when you say, to get back to your question, Tom, who's regulating this stuff? I think it depends on the market, but it's a bit of a wild west right now. If you're looking at the United States, you've got manufacturers trying to meet those sourcing requirements in a supply chain that doesn't necessarily enable that right off the bat. So that requires a lot of behind the scenes mechanization. And then in the European Union, wow, you've just got potentially game changing regulations coming into play for how we how they, I should say, purchase and dispose of their vehicles as well as make their vehicles. Think about that. If you're looking at a Ford or a Chevy in the United States and once too big to fail, these companies are now being, are being told if you're putting an electric vehicle on the market in the EU, you have to meet these requirements. So on the one hand, it's helpful to say, okay, in the EU this and in the US that, we know corporate borders are not um, are not exactly national ones. Really big, exciting stuff happening in this space. Uh, super passionate about it and see a lot of opportunity for compliance as well as for achieving better outcomes as a consumer, as well as as a patriot. Let me go back to something you said a little bit earlier on, and you talked about diversified sources. I am in Texas was in Houston for 40 years and grew up practicing law in and around the energy industry. So when I hear diversified sources, I hear an extension of the life of energy companies because by diversifying the sources of energy, you should draw less energy out of the ground. Now, you can extend that out, maybe 25 years, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years. You also allow situations like we recently had in Texas, where if you have a diversified energy portfolio generating power, if one goes down, another can pick up the slack. 
And so I was wondering if you might, one, is that uh, a valid way to think about it in your mind? And two, can the U.S. use these strategies to diversify its total energy portfolio so that we are not over or hyper dependent on one, but we have a variety that we can use in the context of a weather event, in the context of a geopolitical event, an economic event, or other event? Yeah. So all really good questions. And let me tease it out a little bit because there's a couple of things impact it like compacted in there. If you're talking about energy transmission or energy creation, right? How do you power a household? You're talking about wind or solar. You're not really talking about an electric vehicle battery, right? But that suite of products, an electric vehicle battery, a wind turbine, and a solar panel are all part of lowering the exhaust going out of things that make heat, right? We're not burning. If you're burning oil, that's one way to make heat. If you're using wind, that's another way. One of those ways produces fewer gas emissions, right? So it's not wrongheaded to lump those things. But what we're talking about with batteries and the critical mineral supply chains that go into them, we're talking about a revolution in transportation. So think about you're looking at public transportation, you're looking at mass transportation of goods and shipping. You're talking about single user cars, which are a pretty huge contributor to some of the, the climate goals that we're looking at. Does that help tease it apart a little bit? The truth is you need a suite of things right now because there isn't one particular answer if you're looking at energy transmission or creation of energy markets for consumption of all kinds. Focusing on electric vehicle batteries and transportation, you're talking about one very big part of that overall energy transmission away from oil and natural. Why can't I consider solar panels on my roof, which would generate power that I can run down to my electric charging station for my (laughs) EV battery for my electric vehicle? Touche. You caught me. You could do that. You could do that. I, I would say that's like a nested response, right? <laughs> actually, that's, I know a lot of people who actually do that. And, and they should. I love it. I love it. Love it. And the state of Texas financially incentivizes people to do. So. Let me pick up on another. And on that note, Tom, before we even got to the Inflation Reduction Act and the consumer benefits around the consumer incentives for purchasing an EV battery, during the, in the Infrastructure Act, which predates it, there's billions of dollars going into making it possible for the U.S. road traveler to have a network of EV charging stations, right? Like you got a gas station, you got to stop and fill up. You got an EV battery, you got to stop and charge it. That infrastructure is just game changing. So I'm not going to comment on where Texas got the money, but I'm wondering if that was in there somewhere. Perhaps we will be happy to take money. Let me pick up on something else you said. You talked about incentivizing consumers. What about the role of corporations to educate and to actually advocate policy and get out and lead the discussion, not simply in incentivizing them for discounts or tax credits or something like that, but helping people understand it can diversify an overall energy portfolio. It can help reduce overall carbon emissions and their positive aspects 
as well. Is that a role for a corporation in this space? Absolutely. It's a yes and. The I, I can't comment on the average auto purchaser, right? But having been one myself, walking onto a car lot, I'm bringing with me a whole lot of cares and concerns. But I may be a little bit closer to some of these issues than your average bear when it comes to buying a new car, right? I think that's fair to say. Somebody else coming in off the street may not necessarily have the same incentives that I've got. So there's a yes and about the question because dedicated consumers are going to make purchases with that dedication in mind. But if we're going to achieve the transition, it's about making the best practice just status quo. That has to be where we're going. And I think some companies are fully embracing that. Some companies will see that as part of their brand identity. Others will say, you know what, our consumer might may like this, but it isn't necessarily part of why they buy it. And so that's where the role of regulation can be helpful because it fills in those gaps and it says, okay, guys, you got to, you, you want to do this? Great. Now you've got to do it. And you get a little bit more, no pun intended, compliance out of that. We have to acknowledge you are the first podcast guest in over 5,000 podcasts to reference Yogi Bear on a podcast. So special <laughs> shout out. I'm going to send you a mug for that. Excellent. <laughs> if you can work boo in, I don't know what I'm going to do. But let me turn to some of the roles I've heard you maybe allude to in our chat so far. I asked you about the role of educator or policy. The And these are companies that would market the batteries. What are the roles would you see for both regulatory roles, both compliance and other, maybe it's a lawyer interpreting regs, but also a global role for someone in a company who could not simply advise on or translate, this is what the EU requires, this is what we have to do, but advocate from a U.S. company perspective on a global basis. Are there those types of roles out there? Absolutely. And there there should be more of them. And I think there will be not in the not too distant future. Again, getting to the global nature of supply chains, companies will find an economy of scale at some point about making their supply chains compliant, regardless of where that product is going to go to. So take a mine, for example, picture a really stereotypical something that doesn't get a lot of attention, but may have lots of human rights concerns around it or environmental concerns, et cetera. Any company who's trading their product back to the mine, which they're probably going to have to do in some degree to meet due diligence requirements, is going to be better off in all markets for having understood and done that due diligence of their supply chain. I got to say, it's not very straightforward at the moment, right? This is a massive shift in how global economies are bringing value to the market, meaning you have commodities coming out of the ground that for to some extent maybe have always been valuable but are growing in their value in a market that is incredibly sensitive to shocks and shifts which is where the difficulties come into play of having it dominated by one actor that perhaps doesn't always play well with others you've got companies that are trying to do the right thing here but some of it is not very easy i mentioned the digital product passport 
there's some fantastic consortiums going on right now trying to get to a, a pilot or a prototype of what a digital product passport can do. And I know that we're going to get there, but it's not straightforward. And a lot of really smart people are working on it. So as you look down the line, I don't believe that this is something you can simply farm out to an AI bot. I believe that as a company, you have to, and some of this is just old school, Tom, you got to know your customer and know your customer's customer and keep going back till you hit pay dirt. And no pun intended, when you get there, you'll know that you've gone far enough. And again, the complex, the complexity of supply chains makes this hard, but it's not going to be impossible. And I think there's just space there that's going to continue to grow. Let me maybe take a different approach because the first time I met you, you were with the State Department and had been with the State Department for some time. And as you mentioned, we're there, I think, over 17 years. What's the role of the State Department in this area? You talked about the Department of Energy and mm. you talked about the Department of Interior. And I think I heard you say Department of Commerce. What's really the interest of the State Department in this topic? Look, this is a national strategic issue for U.S. national security and economic interests, full stop. All of the incentive in the world for the U.S. Department of State and the diplomats that serve our country valiantly every day of their careers in carving out and understanding where U.S. interests lie in a strong, reliable, diversified supply chain, full stop. Now, I can attest that it was not always well understood in the diplomatic corps that the United States has an, had an interest in critical minerals supply chains. Let's, it's safe to say I grew a lot of gray hairs making that transition happen, but you've now got it fully embraced by a cadre of amazing people who understand that the United States needs to pursue these things as a matter of national and economic security, just has to. And so I think the State Department is out there under a variety of initiatives, the out there working on behalf of the administration to bring better deals to the fore, to identify partnerships that can strengthen the supply chains. I, I, they're doing hard stuff. And I think they've, they finally recognize it. It's a little bit like saying if it's 1980, how do you convince the State Department that oil is in the U.S. interest, right? I'm pretty sure for a petroleum-based economy, diplomats got that. We're now transitioning to an economy based on a different commodity and a different set of supply chain issues. They get that too. So, And that's administration agnostic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Hands down. It, it can be frustrating in that space because not getting into the politics at all, but just consider you've got a right and a left. These issues are a big Venn diagram. It is a win for everyone. If you are strengthening U.S. relationships, if you are strengthening the U.S. economy and you're doing it in a healthy and safe way that creates benefits for the labor force, that is a win. I don't care who you are. There's a lot of reason to, to not fall asleep on these issues because they're not going away. I don't care who's in the office. Trust me, it is not going away. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted uh, any more information on you or the topics we've touched on, what might be the best place or places for them to go? You know what, Tom? They can hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm very findable, and I would welcome any contact. Pamela, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Always, Tom. Thank you again for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, Ethico is sponsoring the Compliance Podcast Network for the month of February. Are you wrestling with your case management system, not getting the support you need? Get what you deserve from your software. Ethico is offering up to one year of free on any new service. This means case management, innovative issued intake, enterprise-wide disclosures, and much more. To learn more, go to ethicocom.com backslash CPN. The ESG Report is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we look forward to visiting with you again. Thank you.